Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tron Colquest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the TalkHouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. Today we've got a lively conversation between some people whose relationship got off to kind of a rocky start, but who've since become friends. Jeff Tweedy of Wilco and all three members of Mountain Man. That's Amelia Meath, Alexandra Saucer-Monig, and Molly Sarley. Now the occasion for this conversation is the recent reissue of the first Mountain Man record, 2010's Made the Harbor, which features brand new liner notes written by Tweedy. Now, this gorgeous, strange record was made back when these three women were just getting to know each other as college students in Vermont. Somehow, as if by magic, and you'll hear about that in this chat, their voices perfectly intertwined, and some of the very first songs that any of them wrote ended up becoming these timeless little gems. And then they went their separate ways for quite a while. Meath ended up as half of Sylvan Esso, most notably. They've since regrouped for shows and more excellent music, most recently a live album called Look At Me, Don't Look At Me. But check out a little bit of Animal Tracks, from the Made the Harbor reissue. We'll drink horse bar and sit on your backstage and a whisper in your ear in the Now, the members of Mountain Man first met Tweety when they played Wilco's Solid Sound Festival and apparently snubbed Tweety when he introduced himself. No offense was taken and a friendship was eventually formed, though, as you'll hear, Tweety still finds himself a little intimidated in their presence. Tweety's latest entry in an incredibly prolific career is a deluxe edition of Love is the King, the solo album he recorded and released during the first part of the pandemic. It's now getting a bonus disc called Live is the King, which, as you may have guessed, features live renditions of these excellent songs. Tweety and Mountain Man will meet again in person in January during Wilco's Sky Blue Sky Festival in Mexico. Presumably, they will recognize him this time. In this funny, winding conversation, they begin by talking about seasonal depression, pivot quickly to a discussion of candy, and then move on to the serious business of creating music and what that means to them. So we've got everything from Mountain Man's magical discovery of their own voices, like a unicorn in the woods, to Jeff's story about the time he thought he could lose weight by eating only Snickers. One minute, Amelia Meath is talking about sexy lumberjacks on TikTok. The next, Tweety is pining for an honorary bachelor's degree. Won't somebody give him one? We're looking at you, Southern Illinois University at Edwardsville. Enjoy. Yay, we got the whole band together. We did. Yay! I'm in your band now. You are! (laughs) I need to remember to get as much light as possible this time of year. Mm -hmm. Do you ever use a sad lamp being Uh, in the Midwest? I have one because it is a thing that affects me. It doesn't seem to work. Actually, the only thing that ever works for me is working. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah, I think just distracting myself with making stuff and things like that. This is the time of year where everything just 
bottoms out every year, every single year, you know, just like as long, as far back as I can remember as a little kid, you know. Mm. So let's just start everything off on a really high note. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Moving to North Carolina really helped me just like winter being shorter and there being like random weeks of like 70 or 80 degree weather in the middle of January. Mm. Kind of like yeah, I get sad all year long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I do too. But it's like a something just sits down on my sternum mm-hmm. at this time of year and just mm. doesn't get up until spring, you know. Molly and I were talking about this the other day on my porch about how like truly, because at first you're excited about fall. Like, oh, yeah. At first you're like, oh, it's changing. And then like slowly you start realizing that like everything is just sad. It sidles in with this kind of like sweet smell or this like sweet like nostalgia or something and then just like plunks down on your chest <laughs> like, like a like a really un I don't know unwelcome guest mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you ever take vitamin d gummies yeah i absolutely have to take vitamin d yeah. it's like everybody in the northern hemisphere should probably mm-hmm. you know the sugary kind I don't eat sugar. Oh, wow. That's impressive. I'm not like super hardcore. I'll eat fruit and stuff like that, but I don't eat like processed sugar. I just, I just, um, I'm powerless over it. And if I eat any sugar, all of a sudden I'm eating like a dessert after like, I don't know, like a Snickers bar after every salad or like, it's it's just (laughs) like, it turns into this thing. I bet my wife one time that I could lose weight eating only Snickers. No, you did not. Did it work? No, it doesn't work at all. <laughs> I just thought, like, I feel so full after I eat a Snickers. Maybe we'll just get a case of Snickers and I'll just see if I can eat like three Snickers a day. And that's like less calories than I would normally be eating. So I'll just try and do that. So, of course, you know, where it ends up is you eat, I ate like eight Snickers a day. My wife is like, you're an idiot. No, it did not work. It was not. I think that the the science is behind me. The willpower is not. I think just the calorie caloric intake is obviously the only thing that really matters in the in the end. If you're like trying to watch your weight, but there's no. This isn't. I don't think why people came here to. <laughs> I think it is. I actually think it is exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think people are overflowing with joy. Oh God. I love how you're just like you're all three just sitting there silently watching me like <laughs> spool out more and more rope, <laughs> throwing it up over the rafters, tying a noose. <laughs> Like, oh, just watch him go. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> like, where's he going to go with this? I'm taking us further. I've completely reverted into only snacks for babies. Like, I'm really into eating <laughs> sleeves of saltines uh-huh. and gold goldfish. Uh-huh. And it's really, really nice. And I put Reese's peanut butter cups on the rider. Yum. Oh, man. And it's really bad. We're like, we're in our cups all the time. <laughs> Yeah, it's a little bit better if you're on the road and you're like you're you're working your ass off every night on stage and everything. You're probably burning enough calories to like throw some joy at yourself. <laughs> yeah. 
I also uh, really like a Butterfinger every once in a while. I feel like it's a secret flaky treat. It really is. Only if it's a fresh Butterfinger, though. <laughs> uh, to me, Butterfingers, <laughs> when they get a little stale, they get a little like sticky inside, and like, but when they're really flaky and fresh. Now I'm going to eat sugar again. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> I think that like five-year-old Jolly Ranchers are better than new Jolly Ranchers. So do you like bury like jars of Jolly Ranchers in your yard, like like kimchi or something? <laughs> like and just, like season, age them, season them? That would be great if I had a jar of kimchi and a jar of Jolly Ranchers <laughs> yeah. right next to each other. Like, don't eat those Jolly Ranchers. They're not five years old yet. I have a friend who... Uh, when she was a kid on Halloween, she got a box of jujubes. Do you remember what jujubes are? They're like tiny, but they're super hard and they're really hard to ingest. But she accused her sister of stealing her jujubes. Her sister did not steal her jujubes because she walked, a, I don't know, around the corner and her dog was sitting there at the water bowl, unable to open its mouth <laughs> because it, the jujubes had sealed its mouth shut. <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> and then like I think it was invented by the, you know, dental association or dentist convention or something because they could seriously pull your molars out. I, remember, I just remember that. Oh yeah. But anyway, well, it's like your, your record and <laughs> <laughs> That was really fun. I feel really comforted. By the candy talk? Yeah. (laughs) You know, because when you're doing interviews about the past, sometimes it's just like, it's sometimes it's heavy. And sometimes it's just nice to talk about candy. Candy. I kept jawbreakers in my room. Like I would go lick them every day and keep them on my dresser and see, (laughs) just go visit the jawbreaker, take a jawbreaker break. (laughs) It was so gross and melted on like a little paper plate. There are also candies that are specifically designed to cause you pain. Do you remember those candies? Oh, you're talking about warheads. Warheads! Yeah, it's after my time. <laughs> I think it was like, also, wasn't it designed to like do it with your friends where like you both, you're like one, two, three, yeah. and then you just like stare into each other's eyes. And- what? Really? Well, <laughs> well, it's like, it's, it's a pre-internet challenge. Did you do that with your friends, Amelia? No, I didn't have very many candy friends mm. or fr- or like <laughs> or friend I friends think, or friend <laughs> friends. Yeah, I mostly just remember like watching television and eating a lot of them mm. with myself mm-hmm. and being like, "Wow, great job!" <laughs> or like, are staring in the mirror. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only child challenge. I have a sister who's twenty-one years older than me, so she never lived with me. I have them same same thing. I'm a baby by ten years, so none of my brothers, my brothers and my sister weren't around by the time I'm, you know, aware of things. Oh, yeah. I remember when I was reading your book. You read my book? (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. I I love your book. I so deeply identified with you talking about figuring out how to buy records. (laughs) Like, I remember going to Newberry Comics and getting a record and, like, taking it out of its place and then hiding it in a different place so that I would know that it was there when I saved up enough money to get it. Yeah. Where I grew up, I mean, it really was, there was the feeling that that was the only copy of that record that was going to make it to Belleville, Illinois in the Midwest, you know. 
It wasn't something that was going to get ordered again. Mm. I mean, I didn't understand any of that stuff, but there was just a just an intuited sense that this is a rare commodity that I'm not going to have access to unless I secure it in some way. Mm-hmm. I really miss that feeling when you when you would have to invest in a. I know I'm going to sound like a true ancient, but like when you <laughs> bought a record and because it cost like $20 or whatever, and you only had $20 every so often, you would have to like really listen to it. I mean, we all kind of invested in our records more in line with the spirit in which they were created at that time. You know, to create a record, you have to spend a lot of time with it. You have to listen to it a lot and you can't just throw it together. So there was a closer connection between how people felt about this thing that had some value. And if I spent my money on it, I should at least try and like it. And you're like, you were, you went into it wanting to like it. And, and when everything's kind of free and you have access to everything, you might Maybe there's an argument to be made that you have a little bit clearer assessment of other people's art and stuff like that. But you also have like a built in, you know, sort of cavalier attitude towards it because you don't have any investment in it. And so you don't really have to go into listening to any record going, I really want to like this, unless you've already invested in the artist and you already think about the person as being a part of your life or the artist and their work as being a part of your life, which I think that still happens a lot. Mm. But yeah, it's a weird economy of effort. I always feel like the thing that bothers me the most when I put out a record is how hard it is for people to accept it and receive it in the spirit that it was created. That it was like, I'm not trying to take your money. I'm not trying to, you know, get one over on you. I'm not like, I just made this thing and I'm sharing it. (laughs) Every time I put out a record, it feels so bad. And I don't know why. Maybe it's because I have expectations. That could be it. Or like, because I want to be like seen in the way that I want to be seen and felt. Right. It's like when you're really excited to see an old friend and then you see them and you're like, oh, you're, you, (laughs) (sighs) yeah, I don't know. It's just sad. I'm a person that wants the feedback. I want to have the conversation. I want to make this, put it out into the world. And then I'd like to know what you think about it. And I'd like to know that it found somebody and, and it's that you have to really pay attention to. You have to really look for it to get that kind of response. And what you see predominantly is like this sort of unfair sort of dismissal where you know that like someone didn't even have time to form an opinion about this and they're already saying it sucks or something. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, I'm, I would never complain complain about it except here (laughs) because I know that there's like such a, you know, such a fortunate and and I have so much gratitude to be in a fortunate position to be able to put shit out and have something I even love to do, you know? It's been really strange for me to be reliving Made the Harbor, this record, now. It's as if, I think because we made it so long ago and we did this live, like, performance of it, like two Mm -hmm. weeks ago where we all just sat down and sang the record start to finish. And it was like a rediscovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you ever done that? Like sat down and like played one of your old records start to finish, like 10 years after the fact? 
We did being there at Solid Sound one year. We kind of, as a the double record being there, we did from start to finish. And we did Yankee Hotel Foxtrot as an encore that night. Wow. So, and the full thing. <laughs> as a, yeah, as a surprise, because people That's had voted incredible. on being there as being this. We let the, the audience that was coming vote on which record they wanted to hear. Wow. And so they voted for being there, but we we came back out and encored with all of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. <laughs> it is weird, but Wilco has played so much and toured so much over the years that the songs have kind of constantly kept up with me. Do you know what I mean? And mm. I, if I go back and listen to the record, I hear a different person or I hear a different time. But the songs have kind of been dragged along with me maybe more so than they would be if it wasn't something that I revisited pieces of almost every night, mm-hmm. you know? But, I mean, were you happy or were you sad? I mean, doesn't it feel good to know that it, you can still sing those songs and that they feel different? Definitely. I think that it felt like emotional time travel. Like, it just, like, brought back, so, like, things in my body even that I used to feel a lot while singing those songs. I feel like the performance ran the gamut of emotion for me from like the same like strange out of bodyness of being 22 and playing those songs together on tour for like the first time ever. And then also at the same time being like tethered to the me in the moment who's like changed and learned so many different things about singing and relating to Amelia and Molly and It was a very strange experience and like one I'm grateful for, but like it surprised me in its strangeness. I have a theory that that's how music evolved as a language for conveying historical record of things that you can't write, you know, which basically is like a storage device for emotion. You know, the written language, if you could write it, you wouldn't need to sing a melody. If you could write it down, you wouldn't need... I mean, obviously, the melodies are there to help people remember the words because it's a mnemonic kind of device to help remember long stories. But I also think that there's like some component of it that is the only way we transmit to another time in the future how we felt now. You know, I don't know what else we do that is as efficient as a song. It is interesting when you get to experience that from your own music. Yeah, I think... One of the things that was strange about it was because we have played a lot of these songs over the past years, but we have like control the feeling by controlling the set list and like putting other songs in there. And these songs are such a specific deep dive that it was interesting to almost feel like the songs were having more of a control over our emotional world where we were going than we did if we just played them straight through and weren't like thinking about contextualizing them. You know, there's a conversation when you put a new song next to an old song, and it's like, I don't know, they just talk to each other. The coolest part is that it is a collection of all of our first songs, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, Honeybee was like, this is the first song <laughs> that I've written, and it's like this very small, weird little zygote idea of a song, but it's like a true time capsule of being like, oh, this is actually where I started. Yeah, I would have, you know, if like somebody asked me to play the first Uncle Tupelo record, like start to finish, I can't imagine what kind of emotional wreck I would be. (laughs) First of all, I don't know. It's so physically, it would be so physically challenging because like so much of that music was built on this kind of like 
kinetic energy at the time and like youth and stuff too. So there'd be a lot of, I'd probably be in traction by the end of it. I couldn't possibly sing those songs the way I sang them then. I feel like my voice was still changing and I had this weird affected sort of country accent. Like I was still finding a way to sing and sound like myself. And I was Mm. really struggling with uh, being in a band with a guy who had a really strong, like kind of uh, manly voice. And I sound like a little hillbilly, you know, (laughs) I would have to imitate myself to go back and try and sing that. Mm -hmm. But you, that's the thing that I wrote about kind of, I think in the liner notes for made the harbor is like you all come out sounding like yourselves i mean all i think all bands are miracle a little bit all groups are kind of a miracle to find people that are all pointed in the same direction and have at least enough of a shared idea of where they want to go creatively for it to work but there's so much that is idiosyncratic and only comes from your three voices being put together but it's not just the blend of the three voices it's the decisions to use certain rhythms a lot of the phrasing to me is just like how do you get three people to decide that this is the right way to phrase this hmm. this piece that seems really miraculous to me and it doesn't sound like a a first record, it sounds like an archival, like release of some traditional folk music from a, from an island that nobody's ever heard of or something that was allowed to evolve in its own space. How did that happen? Did it just, did it just happen? I have a couple thoughts, words in my brain. Something I think about that Amelia has said about when she would sing around her house when she was younger. Her mother would tell her to like not imitate other people, but to find her own voice. Hmm. And I think about that sometimes, even when I'm singing by myself, like what does it mean to find your own voice and not imitate other people? Is it like a feeling that you have in your body? Yeah. But then there was the last thing. (laughs) (laughs) How do, yeah, it did feel like we were on our own island. And I think that was because we were so there together that it was like, of course, we're on our island. Whatever is happening is 100% working. And Vermont kind of is an island. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like we were like very physically isolated in this little like strange zone of everyone trying to make things all the time. And there was something really unselfconscious about where we met in like the stage of life that we were in where like just creating was so potent and exciting and like Mm -hmm. explosive that like it created a lot of freedom and room to just like see what what our voices and our spirits and our weird songs that we had written added up to and to like be like I have this idea I have this idea and like nothing else was getting in the way of investing in that. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you said that about Amelia's mom, because that really is what it sounds like. But it, with three people, it does have the, the unselfconsciousness or like the freedom that you would imagine a little kid walking around the house having just vocalizing, you know. But where that becomes super, super free form and expressive, it doesn't have a lot of order that you could see transmitted to two other people. 
So that's the part of it that charms me so much is that the sisterhood of being able to do that together, like so intimately, you know, bands try and play together in a really intimate way, but there's a, you know, most bands are operating within a pretty structured set of rules and time and instrumentation and things like that. Vocal voices are so much more completely like malleable. Mm-hmm. It's not like one instrument. It's like a it's like a million instruments. And to get them all to line up like that, well, I don't know. At some point with things like that, it's you just stop thinking about it and and just admit that you just love it and you don't understand it but I just I needed I needed to ask because I wrote about it for the record and I thought about it a lot when I was listening to the record again I just love that shit like that happens it's like a the way nature makes things happen that's gorgeous thanks Jeff thanks Jeff <laughs> well you're welcome I just thank you I'm still curious if there are more thoughts about it because, I, again, I feel like I just talk too much. <laughs> I'm having so much fun. Uh, I, th- I don't think you're talking too much at all. And also, thank you for writing the liner notes. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> we love them so much. Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of the Talk House is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. They also make it easy to upload lyrics and metadata and to track your earnings and share them with your bandmates and co-writers. You can even snap on extras like Instant Share, which allows for easy collaboration. The DistroKid app makes it all a seamless experience that will save you a ton of time that would be better spent making music. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Head over to the App Store to download it. All bands and artists have jobs, right? Jobs they do like, others they don't. Times they're fucked up and they've had to face the boss with rosy cheeks and the tails between their legs. 101 Part-Time Jobs is the podcast where we hear those stories. I've had some killer guests on, like The Chisel, Chastity Belt, Real Estate, Kurt Vile, Mannequin Pussy, and so many more. If you subscribe to 101 Part-Time Jobs podcast, you'll be getting two episodes weekly. That's a promise. See you soon. I've also been realizing, I think like a certain amount of unselfconscious isolation that was happening was that we were really young. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at least for, for me, I was really trying to present a front of confidence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, the three of us together are quite intimidating mm-hmm. and were it, mm-hmm. I, possibly more intimidating when we were smaller. Oh, I was intimidated by you <laughs> when the first time I met you all. <laughs> <laughs> sure yeah yeah and i think because of that we were able we kept on like push we would be like no we want it this way and we didn't even know what the heck we were asking for 
and that manifested a lot in venues, but also like in the in the decisions that we made or like mm-hmm. in the in the like the business decisions. And then I think creatively that also moved because we would just be like, well, why don't we do it like this? Mm-hmm. So like it led to like a lot of strangely creative, strong choices that were actually built on true intuition Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and not necessarily actually understanding what was going on. Mm -hmm. One of the things I do love the most about made the Harbor is that like, there, like is there's like two songs with repeating parts. (laughs) (laughs) Every song you write and everything you do eventually kind of wears paths through the forest of creativity. And you just get sort of without even making those millions of little decisions, you start to have a bunch of decisions that automatically kind of get checked off as you're, as you're walking through the forest. Cause you know, Oh God, I know that this is, this is the right way to go. Um, and then sometimes you're confronted with an earlier thing that you did that it's like, why would you ever put this here? This doesn't belong here. And it's, it, it actually makes it harder to to relearn the song sometimes for us, for Wilco as a band, especially because as a band, those things really become entrenched. I think. I think that's <laughs> what I feel about our older songs, and I think about the way that we made things in general. It's like, is it doing the thing? Is it gonna mm-hmm. make people fucking die inside with feelings? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we don't need to. Mm-hmm. know this or that or the other thing those might have been helpful but i think part of the magic of mountain man is that mountain man always does what it does and like that is the most important thing about making anything and we've kind of always had that mm-hmm. <laughs> i think like all songs are actually magical spells like i was th- thinking about it when you were talking about how like how they transmit the feeling of like what what it felt like before mm-hmm. or like those things when you get it right like it come it like appears and you you're there at the right moment and you write it down and make it and then it actually transports you and then when you play it again it transports other people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah no i think every any song that is that i've ever felt worth was worth sharing is a song that I found some way to listen to as a listener and have it and have it work on me in some way, you know? Yeah. I think Mountain Man somehow through the instrumentation of our three voices, mm-hmm. we were able to like sail over figuring out how to make that happen. Mm-hmm. And it like just started there. Mm-hmm. So it actually felt like we came upon like it felt like we were walking in the forest and we like literally saw a unicorn. Yeah. <laughs> and the <laughs> unicorn was us. Yeah. We would all like we would get together for practice and just get like we would just be like high. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. like shivery and freaked mm-hmm. out and so excited. And like staring at each other like open mouthed. <laughs> I think that's the part that would have to be dismantled if you came from some other music-making environment that is typical, probably, of people at that time and your age in that environment or local scene or whatever. If you came from other bands, if you came from other musical environments, I think a lot of that would have had to have been dismantled somehow for Mountain Man to work. I majored in art 
at Benning, like visual art, like I like painted and made weird sculptures and things. And like, I remember having the feeling that I didn't feel like the drawings I was making were making other people feel the way they made me feel when I made them. And so writing songs became something that I was really intrigued by because like music is so transportive. And I feel like Mountain Man in a lot of ways felt like an art project to me of like, how do we take the spirit of creation but use it to make people feel more than I feel like they feel when they're looking at something that they can just walk away from. Mm -hmm. Cause like a song has like a duration, mm -hmm. whereas like looking at something like you decide how long it lasts. Yeah. That's the temporal quality of music is the most magical part of it. Probably. Totally. Yeah. The visual arts thing, it makes sense to me because, well, aside from the fact that so many great records and bands have kind of grown out of art school and that type of environment. But the songs themselves have more of a sculpture shape or a visual arts kind of shape to me than song writing songs. You know what I mean? Like paintings don't have choruses, you know, Paint, you know, like mm -hmm. sculptures don't have bridges, you know, they, like you don't. <laughs> You don't tell people what they're supposed to look at. And that's what a chorus is, is telling somebody what's the important part or telling people like how to think about it in a way and leading them. Interesting. So, yeah, the songs on Made the Harbor are much more in line with the shapes and forms that I think you would associate with visual art. That's so cool. I've never thought about a chorus like that. <laughs> You know, then and you obviously use that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've written choruses and have underlined that idea mm -hmm. as being the crystallized essence of what the song is trying to say. And it's like kind of a way in, mm -hmm. you know, so that the next time somebody listens to it, hopefully they put the rest of the story together. <laughs> but you were studying acting, right, Molly? Mm -hmm. Studying performance, yeah. And Amelia, what were you studying? Physical theater and performance. I eventually, I I studied a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> so I did too in school, and I managed to not get a single credit after three years. Really? Yeah. How'd you do that? That's a feat. I don't know how I did that. I just wasted my parents' money. <laughs> I never went to class. I guess I just signed up, and they let me sign up and re, you know try it again, and I would just end up not. You wouldn't go. I would go to the school because I would live with my parents still. And it was like a 40-minute drive to go to the school, SIU Edwardsville. And I would just go to the library because they had a record collection and they had records you could sit and listen to records. Tons of records I'd never, ever seen before, like, you know, modern composition records like John Cage and things that were like, what? Where is this come from? They had all this stuff I'd never seen before. But but yeah, now I'm I'm really wanting somebody to give me an honorary bachelor's degree. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't want a doctorate. I just want an honorary bachelor's degree. Yeah. Is that so much to ask? You can no. definitely get one of those. I want one too. Oh yeah, Molly, I want you to have one too. Oh yeah, you Molly. Yeah. Yeah, you you dropped out before it was all over with? I did. I went for three years on and off, and then we we hit the road with Feist. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Which is, yeah, the first time I met you, I was handily dismissed. <laughs> I remember that. So I remember with, that. With, with extreme prejudice. <laughs> the way that best friendships begin. 
Yeah. Yeah. I was like, hi, I'm Jeff. Uh, thank you for playing this festival. It's really great to have you here. And I was like, okay. <laughs> oh my God. We were just trying. We, we didn't know. Yeah. We didn't know. Yeah. Sorry, no, I know. I, oh, I, I love it. I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> and then the next time I think, I think the next time that I saw you all was on the road in Europe somewhere with Feist. Were we dismissive mm-hmm. then? No, you were actually all very, very sweet and and, <laughs> and friendly. And I don't know, you seemed to be just really living life with a lot of gusto at that time. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean? Because we weren't showering? <laughs> you weren't showering. You definitely weren't. You weren't showering. You seemed... Yeah, no, it was, it was... I missed that. No, you were all really, really warm and welcoming. And, and I... I didn't take it personally that the, the first meeting was... I had that happen many times, by the way, at that festival at Solid Sound. Really? Because I always go around and I try and say hi to the bands, all the different bands that play, because they're all there because I love them or we love them. And I'm like, I don't expect everybody to... I'm not like a... I'm not like Tom Hanks or something. I don't expect everybody to be able to recognize me. We like would have right dismissed him too. I had that same thing happen with the band Foxygen one time. They were at our festival and it was like, like, hey, thanks for playing the festival. It's really, really great to see you. And it's like, oh, hey. And you are? <laughs> I'm like, I'm Jeff. Jeff who? It's like, oh, never mind. Never mind. Just glad to have you here. <laughs> Let it be known, though, that we were the first to snuff. Yeah. Up. I think yeah. that was the first year of yeah. solid sound. Yeah. No, you, you were pioneers. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'm, I am honored to have that title. I kind of came around at the wrong moment. I think you guys were moving your gear or you were getting ready to go on or you had just gotten off. And like, there's a lot to concentrate on, especially outdoor festivals. Yeah, somebody knocked over my guitar. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You were upset about that. I, I bet I was. It was the second yeah. time it happened. Yeah. Oh, yeah. People kept knocking over my guitar. That's not okay. It's not okay. And then the headstock broke. and But I still got it. It's it's actually about five feet away from me. And it it plays great. Yeah. (laughs) I watched somebody's guitar get blown off of a off of a guitar stand. (laughs) What? And break. Yeah. No. Rodney Crowell's guitar. Oh, really? That's so sad. Oh, my God. It was windy. It was really windy. Oh, that's so scary. Yeah. Well, at least it wasn't a person, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, there's right. something kind of magical about having the wind break your guitar. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. That is true. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. like it's faded. But it's good that it wasn't somebody like us, because we might think that that's a sign that we should probably not play the guitar anymore. <laughs> I, like I, would, I don't know. Wouldn't it be nice if we got, like, really solid signs like that all the mm-hmm. time? Yeah. Like, if you, you're working on a song and... and yeah, the guitar just like flies out flies out of your lap. Like, That's not a good. It's not a good song. Yeah, I think no, do. it's not a good song. Don't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. What are you doing today with the rest of your day, Jeff? I am at the studio at the loft. I just got home from our tour a few days ago, and I am probably looking to figure out a way to ease back into working on some of the stuff I've been working on. Oh, cool. Do you write when you're on tour? I don't think I have the same kind of energy for writing, but I always feel like you can make something stupid 
you can make something up. I do a lot of free writing, like poems and stuff like that on a daily basis, just because I just feel like when you, I've just had it happen too many times where I feel like, God, if I hadn't just made myself do that that day, I wouldn't have this this lovely turn of phrase that I'd never thought of before. It's just little pieces, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just putting yourself in the path all the time as, as, a, as a habit or as a, you know, as a practice. And it doesn't take hardly any time at all. It's amazing how much stuff you accumulate. I'm amazed at how many things kind of actually come out of all of that, that like five minutes of, of concentration or five minutes of intent but just a little bit of intent spent five or 10 minutes a day ends up being really useful to me. So, so but at home is where I finish, you know, finish songs, like really like write arrangements or think of like a full set of lyrics or something like that or, or refine things. But on the road, I try and record little guitar pieces every day and, and do free writing and you know, it's just inspiration finds me most often at my desk, as they say. Mm. I'm not the first person to say that. I think it's a quote from somebody. No, no, I mean like showing up, <laughs> making a habit of setting yourself in the path. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Full circle, if we're talking about this time of year being a mood disorder type of difficult period, traditionally or historically for me, these are the types of things that I've evolved to have to cope with that. And that mm. is like a little checklist. It's not a, I don't have a physical checklist. It's like a mental checklist. If I do this, 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 and this, I generally get through the day and I feel a little bit better. Alex, that's like your list. Yeah. Yeah. At the beginning of COVID, I, I did write myself a list on the wall for like the things that if I did them during the day, it would make me feel better about being alive. Right. Go for a walk, do some kind of exercise, write a little bit, read a little bit, play the guitar a little bit. It's really not that much stuff. I have a lot of free time. I don't have a a day job I have to go to or something like that. I'm an advocate for making stuff. I just think that that's like an underappreciated way to spend time with your Mm -hmm. imagination. I think it's just as intoxicating and just as much fun as a as a f- game on your phone <laughs> or, or so many other things that we do that are just kind of t- to kill time or time sucks. And the only thing that stands in the way of most people doing it, I think, is just this idea that they're not good at it. Mm. Or they don't deserve to find joy. Yeah, but they, that doesn't stop them from throwing a fucking Frisbee. They all suck at throwing a Frisbee. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but you know what I mean? Like we do so many things, so you don't need that permission. There's no way down it. And like you're not going to judge yourself harshly if you're not good at it. But but for some reason, creativity has this um, premium placed on it and, and the way people perceive it as being only for some people or something. Everybody should make things. Yeah. I mean... If they want to. I have a suspicion that there's some form of it in a lot of people's lives that isn't really visible to us. So I don't mm-hmm. want to be like all doom and gloom. Like I think it's something nobody does. I think it's... I think that people find ways to express themselves in lots of different ways that are imperceptible to 
someone who has associated creativity with writing songs or, or mm. art or something like that. Some people are really good at being a human. And, yeah. and I think anybody that's really good at being a human has figured out a way to use their creativity to brighten a room or, or to, to uh, help a friend or, or all kinds of different ways of interacting with the world that require improvisation and, and creativity. But it's not always intentional and it doesn't always have the, the element of practice as, uh, you know, as like a habit or something, you know, which I think if you add that element, then it, then it has a, like it has a more sturdy, sustaining kind of presence in your life. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, again, I like, mm-hmm. I'm just... Shut up, Jeff. No, don't shut up, Jeff. <laughs> oh, I agree with what you said. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's because of the first dismissal that I still like whenever I'm looking at your faces, all three of you <laughs> together on a Zoom call like this, I'm mistaking like like agreement with like poor Jeff. <laughs> no. no, I was I was thinking about what you were saying and I was like, yeah, maybe everything is creativity and ways to practice it intentionally so you can keep bringing it into your life. Well, yeah, my theory is that if most people weren't creative, they would never make it home. They would never, you know, they would never. Oh, yeah. We like we improvise all day long. We improvise our conversations. I feel like all my creative energy is going into TikTok. Really? Right now. <laughs> I've really started. I've really started TikToking on this tour. Oh, my God. How does that make you feel, Amelia? I figured out a way to do it, and it's just writing, like, weird improvised songs over documentations mm-hmm. of the day. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that that is really fun and feels feels creative. Yeah, I look, I mean, TikTok's pretty amazing because that's, that's obviously a new way for lots and lots of people to exercise their creativity. And look at how much of it there is. I mean, there's a lot of things to be doom and gloom about in the world, but I think you got to take your wins where you see them. To me, that's a win. My wife loves it. She's always on TikTok and looking at, you know, just a lot of smart, funny people and cute kids. It does really reflect your interests in a way, I think, that somehow feels more benign than some of the other um, economies of outrage that, like, Twitter's an economy of outrage. But I don't spend that much time on it. I don't have an account, so, I mean... If I open up TikTok, it's like half naked girls because that's the stuff that's at the top. And I just like, I just came like, I don't, I don't want to make an account. I don't really, you know, I have it on my phone, but so Susie sends me stuff that she's into and I see it, but it doesn't actually transfer it laid into an algorithm that's Mm. like reflecting me or anything. I have like whatever the raw, whatever the raw TikTok <laughs> experience is, the lowest common denominator or whatever, like the most popular shit is. That's what I, I'm like, oh, my God, why? Oh, like, what is going on? Yeah, there are a lot of worlds. My TikTok's been like really trying to figure out my pansexuality, which is really fun because it's just like awesome lesbians and couples being like, isn't it cute how heterosexual we are? And we like switch between those two. <laughs> And then today I randomly got just like hot, tattooed, wood chopping men. Wow. Ooh. See, I don't and it's ever get all those. Like, 
They're like, <laughs> they are steamy videos that like men are definitely making of their own, of themselves. <laughs> yeah. Like, being like, here's me with my axe. Yeah. Like, I'm chopping this wood and like all morning. They're great. It's not like a, a raccoon is making those of just like, you know, candidly sneaking up on a, on a lumberjack, <laughs> posting videos. I sent Molly this really amazing video of a of this woman. I think like she's walking her pet cat in a tiny bowl, mm-hmm. but she's just like, I've got my pussy in a bowl and we are going for a walk. And the cat is really comfortable looking. And she just says pussy in a bowl a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> Am I pussy in a bowl? <laughs> My wife might like that. <laughs> this was really fun. Lovely. And I'm um, going to get to see, I think, all of you very soon. <gasps> yeah. Oh, that's going to be so fun. Can you? Um, would you all be interested in singing some songs with um, uh, the Tweety Band, with like when Spencer and I play mm-hmm. with our, our band? The full one, huh? Yeah. Or something mm-hmm. like that. Let's just talk sometime before because it'd be fun to figure out some songs to do. That sounds great. Thanks for listening to the Talk House podcast, and thanks to Jeff Tweedy and Mountain Man for chatting. If you liked what you heard, follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting platform and all relevant social channels. This episode was produced by Melissa Kaplan, and the TalkHouse theme, as always, is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.